0: This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned Books and Books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over the backyard fence kind of conversations the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. My guest today on The Literary Life is, in his own words, an author, speaker, and former correspondent for NPR. But I prefer to think of myself as a philosophical traveler. My interest, my obsession, really, is the intersection of places and ideas. It is at this intersection, I believe, where the most fascinating aspects of life unfold, be it our search for happiness, wisdom, or creative expression. His new book sits right at that intersection. The Socrates Express in search of life lessons from dead philosophers is the book. And I welcome its author, Eric Weiner, to today's of the literary life. Eric is the author I'm sure many of you know, the best-selling The Geography of Bliss and The Geography of Genius. I knew Eric when he was that correspondent for NPR, covering, I believe at the time, the Caribbean and Latin America and Miami as well. And I knew him when he would be in that bookshop, and he was my bookshop, and he was writing away, uh, which I believe turned out to be The Geography of Bliss, if I'm not mistaken, Eric. So... I welcome you again uh, to Miami, even though it's virtually to Miami. And I thank you for being on The Literary Life. It's great to thank see you again,
1: Eric. It's great to see you, Mitch. I'm feeling some of that virtual Miami sunshine on my face.
0: <laughs> so yeah, no, Miami
1: is a state of mind anyway, isn't it, Mitch?
0: It certainly is. You were here for how long? Remind me of how long. Uh,
1: too short, about three years. Um, but I remember I lived uh, right, uh, right down the road within walking distance of your Coral Gables store. And so I've got a, a certain fondness for that neighborhood and for your store.
0: Well, and, and I think, you know, what has been so gratifying for me as a bookseller is to watch how your career as a writer of books has uh, resonated and has found its readership. Um, It started with Geography of Bliss, and and you had a very strong idea, which you continued as a thread through all of your books, which is what I just said, which is the marrying of places and ideas. You clearly love to travel, and you clearly love to try to figure things out. So talk about a little bit about those two loves that you have? Well, I mean, basically I'm a
1: place person and an idea person, and I found a way um, to marry the two. Um, So when I think about an idea, whether it's, you know, say a question, like, you know, what's the secret to happiness, or what's the secret to creative genius, or where what is wisdom? I immediately follow up with the where question, like where can I go? to see this idea materialized. Because, you know, there are writers and, and academics who write about ideas, but they, they always run the risk, I think, of having those ideas sort of floating off into the ether because there's nothing grounding them. And on the other hand, there are travel writers and others who write about places, um, but they never take off um, off the ground. It's, it's, they do a great job of detail and, and evoking a place. Um, for me it 's the intersection of the two because i I look at the world as a laboratory of ideas, basically and of good ideas because despite the news there 's there 's good stuff happening out there right now as we 're speaking and and it 's that good stuff that
0: i 've tried to excavate in my writing well, and you do it really well and in in the socrates express it 's a book that Although it's releasing today, it's a book that I got in galley form months ago, and I read it during the lockdown and when we were in a more dire circumstance we are now, even though it's quite hot uh, with COVID in Miami even now, and I don't know when we're going to get out of all of this mess. But it came at a time which was very reflective for so many of us. And what I found so interesting about it, and we'll talk a little bit about the structure of it, is that it was really good as I was cooped up in my office or my house and I was able to read about your travels while at the same time trying to kind of understand how these, you know, understand the wisdom of these various philosophers and how you could then sort of take their lessons and and live your own life in an even better, more fulfilling way. It was something that was so needed at a time when we were all so inward and so locked down. So talk about. I mean, you start the book with departure, and you end it with arrival, and explain in between what you do in this book.
1: Well, I'll um, I'll start with the first line of the book. Um, we are hungry, and uh, and I think that even before the pandemic and this mess we're in, we were hungry. Hungry for for wisdom. And but we think we think we're hungry for information and knowledge, but we're not. It is wisdom that we're after, and there are many sources available to us for wisdom. Um, there's pop psychology, there's religion, there's Oprah, but there's this other source that I think has gone largely untapped, which is philosophy. And philosophy comes from the ancient Greek philosophos, philosophos, and that means literally. Uh, someone who loves wisdom or the love of wisdom. doesn't say anything about analytics or logic or anything like that. It's simply the love of wisdom. So um, I've arranged the book into three sections to match the arc of a day and the arc of a lifetime. Morning, noon, and dusk. Dawn, noon, and dusk and uh, the point is that some questions, and each chapter is a question, a how-to question, some questions are urgent to us when we're young, how to how to wonder, how to walk, how to see, how to listen. And others sort of come into play in middle age, uh, how to fight, how to be kind, um, how to appreciate the small things in life. And then there are questions that come to us later in life, and perhaps you can relate to this. I'm not sure. Uh, not suggesting you're late in life, but you know what I mean. How to cope, uh, how to have no regrets, how to grow old, and how to die. And each chapter is a how-to question answered by a different philosopher, channeled through me. Um, I do a fair amount of of channeling because uh, they're not always the easiest to read, philosophers, and they were all... uh, to a man and a woman in my book, I would say human in the fullest sense. These were flawed individuals. I try to put flesh on the bones and to sort of bring them down from their pedestals.
0: And you and you did do that. Um, how how you know one of the things that I was um, thinking about when I read it was how personal it was as well. And and the thing that I think makes it um much more relatable is the way you as you say we experience these philosophers through your eyes and your own experience and what you're learning about it um everything from in in dawn where the very first philosophy we talk about it's about getting out of bed <laughs> to that's record. pretty
1: basic right it if is you very can't, uh, yeah
0: you know being a morning uh, person or not a, a morning person to at the very end you know all of the philosophers come into play in the, um, in the afterward, in, in a sense where you're, where you break your cell phone and you're kind of, you know, the worries that you might've had before because of everything you've gone through, uh, you begin to see a little bit differently. So it kind of begs the question. I know it's a question that, you know, you're anticipating, but, How is it that you chose these particular philosophers, and why did you choose them? Well,
1: first of all, I should say it's not an easy task, because if you Google philosophers, you'll get a list of hundreds, probably thousands, right? And so uh, I made personal decisions to choose the ones who spoke to me, who, as I said, seemed human. Uh, And uh, I just realized just a couple days ago that none of them really were affiliated with the university or if they were, they were kicked out (laughs) or they left. Um, so these were all what I call feral philosophers. And I think that's one reason I find them so uh, relatable. Um, and they all kind of own their, their flaws in a way. I mean, Gandhi, for instance, uh, is seen as a saint by many, but he was a flawed individual in many ways. And, um, you say my book was personal. The, the the writings of these philosophers were personal too. They were they lay, sort of laid it out on the page. They didn't really hide behind academic jargon. So that was the first thing. Um, and I wanted different flavors of wisdom, right? So to to create the arc of a life and this sort of you know if if you looked at this as sort of an owner's manual for being a human being, you wouldn't want the owner's manual of your car to be all about the braking system or the steering system or you know if it was just about the electric electric windows and <laughs> didn't know how to do anything else you'd be you'd be in trouble um so different flavors of wisdom and um i wanted a, a range um a temporal range and i've got everyone from socrates lived in 5th century bc athens to simone de beauvoir who passed away is uh in 1985 in paris and and um you know, philosophy is often shorthand for Western philosophy, but the West has no uh, monopoly on wisdom. And um, that's why we have Confucius and Gandhi and a fairly obscure uh, 10th century Japanese writer and I think philosopher named Sei mm-hmm. Um So I, I wanted range, um, but a range of people who... Uh, we're kind of messed up human beings struggling to make sense of the world like myself
0: and you started with a wonderful quote by uh, Maurice uh, Riesling, sooner mm-hmm. or later, "Life makes philosophers of us all and
1: uh, and welcome to so- welcome to sooner Mitch <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, You also say that you know this was in, in somewhere in the book you say that i think it was in the acknowledgements you say that socrates believed philosophy is a group activity so too is writing a book about philosophy so mm-hmm. my question is when you did this who did you seek out um and how were these people that you sought out to help you kind of guide the world of guide tr- go through the world of philosophy how did they help you hmm. Um, so I'll tell you about how I
1: think, um, and I hope this isn't too long winded of an answer, but, um, I think my writing, uh, career and style has sort of mirrored that of Montaigne's, um, in that in his essays, as he invented the form of the essays, he, he begins in the early essays kind of tentatively and rely, leaning on the views of other people philosophers from ancient times. He was writing the 1500s. And I think earlier in my writing, I did rely on characters to uh, sort of, you know, be the stand in for whatever place or idea I was trying to convey. But as I think with each book, I, I get more confident like Montaigne did in my own voice. So I made a conscious effort to be very selective about the characters in the book. Um, so it's it's the philosopher in me and i didn't want to have too much in between us right because we often you know if you read about nietzsche you're not reading nietzsche you're getting it channeled and so i wanted to read him directly and uh when i did introduce characters i made sure they were bang for the buck um people like tom merle who is 73 years old lives in napa california and is a devotee of Epicurus, the original Greek philosopher Epicurus. So there's someone who's walking the walk, who's living it. Uh, for the Stoic chapter, I met a cast of characters at Stoic Camp in Wyoming.
0: And I, loved, I loved reading about that. Talk and about these
1: them. are, well, these, it started by talking about characters. This great character named Rob Coulter, who looks like sort of a hipster Santa with a gray goatee and a pot belly, and he's a philosophy professor at the University of Wyoming. Love Stoicism. And one of the precepts of Stoic philosophy is to live in accord with nature. And so one day Rob was like, well, we got lots of nature right here in Wyoming. Let's have a Stoic camp. And I saw just a little like black and white ad in somewhere for, you know, it was very enticing. It was like, come to Stoic camp and change yourself, be happy you know shed your neuroses it didn't say that but that was implied and so so i got on a train because i take trains everywhere in this book uh for wyoming or as close as amtrak would get me and we're all huddled together in this building that i describe as uh if you had a uh ski lodge meet with a minimum security prison this is what this lodge would look like it was <laughs> sort of cozy in an institutional way if, if that's not a contradiction And we Stoics, we we lived uncomfortably, um, but we weren't supposed to complain. And we really did, though, dive deep into the texts of Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor and Stoic, and wrote a very popular book, still popular today, called Meditations. Um, We read about a teacher named Epictetus, a Stoic teacher. And we wrestled with these ideas, and I just realized how unusual it is. For people to get around to get together these days in our day and age and do that well first of all we don't get together much at all but even before the pandemic to get together for the sole purpose of batting around big philosophical ideas about if not the meaning of life about leading meaningful lives you know when's the last time you got together with a group of friends and said you know ask questions like you know what's the good life um, how can I be less annoyed by life's trivialities? I mean, you know, big questions, personal questions. And we, we did that there. And, um, and sometimes I was uh, alone. You know, Rousseau in uh, Switzerland, I went in his footsteps and I did lots of walking in the woods that he did in a solitary way, as he did. And so I guess I was trying to not imitate the philosophers, but um, imbibe them. And, and walk in their footsteps. Does that oh, make sense?
0: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Okay, Particularly in light of reading the book. The, the, the other thing I think too, which I appreciated, was the different ways of travel. Train travel is something that is now coming into its own again with Joe Biden, <laughs> such a lover of trains. But I really love the fact that you love trains. Um, I remember, I have never taken that many train rides, but um, the ones that I have taken are imprinted on me. Uh, you also walk a lot, you know, the whole idea of walking. Right. There's a walk- huge connection between
1: walking and philosophy, yeah. yeah.
0: And, and what is that,
1: <sighs> you think?
0: Tell me about, you know, both of the, the walking and the taking of trains.
1: Yeah, so let's start with the walking. It, it um,
0: implies a kind of, you know, contemplative, to go
1: along exactly both are contemplative um, both are done slowly um, mm-hmm. we you know walk at about three miles per hour is an average pace um, and you know uh, Rousseau was a great walker put in 20 miles a day. Henry David Thoreau would walk through the uh, countryside of Concord he, he liked the word sauntering he would say he would go sauntering, which is a great word I think. Um, and, you know, novelists like Dickens were, were big walkers, and Freud was a walker, and and they all, to a man and a woman, uh, would talk about this experience of having ideas come to them where walk, they were walking. Rousseau would carry a little uh, deck of playing cards with him when he walked, and jot down ideas as they came to him. The English philosopher Thomas Hobbes had an an inkwell installed in his walking stick so he could dip his pen in while he walked. Um, So they sort of knew that they were going to get a good idea when they were walking, but they didn't know what that idea was until they walked. Um, There's some interesting psychology behind it, Mitch, that is, you know, studies that have shown that when we're walking, we're in a state of what's been called defocused attention. So we're alert, you know, we're paying sort of enough attention to our walking so we don't fall on our face. But, there's enough hard drive space in our brain to allow some connections to be made. Um, So just sitting in your office, staring at your computer is probably the worst way to come up with the next great idea. Um, But likewise, you know, driving a race car at 150 miles an hour, you know, you're going to be so distracted and so uh, intent on not crashing. And so it's sort of that state between action and inaction. And that that's true for walking and trains i think that's true for as well although i should an interesting historical note that i discovered researching this book is that when train travel first became popular in the mid-19th century a lot of people a lot of writers especially complained it was way too fast you know victor hugo describes you know the countryside as a blur i can barely see it and he was going maybe 15 miles per hour so it's all relative. But to us now, when we're used to strapping ourselves into aluminum cans, and hurtling it's through space, and at 600 miles per hour, trains are slow. And I, I say explicitly in the book that there's a connection between slowness and philosophy, and it's contemplative. And I just love, I don't love them, you know, I'm not like a train head, like these people who love the types of engines and the tonnage ratings. I just love the experience, that sort of expansiveness you get when you take a train from, say, Washington, D.C. to Portland, Oregon, which I have done and which I highly recommend.
0: Yeah, there's something about seeing things go by through the window of a train, and at the same time, there's something very comforting I always found about the rocking of a train. and you know, right. It's a very, You're right. I see now,
1: a bus doesn't have that. The kinetics are all off. I cannot think on a bus. No one ever thinks on
0: Greyhound. I, I think it doesn't happen no i agree never never no i think thinking doesn't happen when you know when you're when you're watching the person driving (laughs) when you know that there's someone driving something oh that's a good point you're you're kind of watching out for them i think um all right so of all these guys um and gals and and gals and women and women of all these people um was there one that you felt spoke to you more directly than than any of the others
1: Mm. um they all spoke to me some more loudly than others uh uh montaigne uh as i said did because he was filled with doubts um his motto was what do i know (laughs) um not a great campaign slogan if you're running for president, but if you're a philosopher in southern France, it works pretty well. But what he meant by that was actually something seriously pretty profound. What do I know? It's always questioning this knowledge that we think we have, not just knowledge in the scientific sense, but knowledge in in the heart sense. Um, uh, I think I want to be successful, but what do I know? Um, I think my neighbor's a jerk, but what do I know? Maybe they're not. So there's always that that doubting. Um, But it's a kind of doubt that can actually take you places. It doesn't paralyze you. It actually moves you along. And Montaigne had that. And he was quirky, and he wrote about, in his essays, uh, he wrote about everything from thumbs and cannibals to God and sex and death. And he wrote wrote quite eloquently about death. So I would say Montaigne. And oddly... um, the little-known courtier from uh, Imperial Japan, uh, Seishonagan, who I probably, I don't know if we would hit it off if we met, but she probably taught me the most about appreciating the small. You know, I tend to be a big idea person, big sandwich, big, everything's big, you know. And, and she, her thing really was the beauty in the small, and in, in this book, The Pillow Book, an odd, quirky little book, she really drills down and describes the beauty of of the small, like the blossom from a uh, cherry blossom, a uh, bowl of strawberries, um, or she also describes um, the ephemeral nature of all this beauty. And, you know, the Japanese, this is deeply rooted in Japanese culture, they believe that something uh as fleeting as a cherry blossom is beautiful, uh not uh despite its impermanence, but because of it. That um it's been said beauty lies lies in life's vanishing. Um and I think during this time we've all had a taste of the impermanence of life. You know, we made grand plans, didn't we? And poof. You know, they go up in smoke and things we thought were so solid, you know, are suddenly revealed to be just confetti in the air. Yeah. That sounds yeah, darker I than I mean it. I mean it in, a, in
0: an uplifting way, actually. Eric, talk about some of the places you went on your, on your travels as you did this book, as you wrote this book, as you thought about it.
1: Okay. Uh, I'll tell you what. I'll name some of the places. And you choose one that intrigues you, and I'll drill a little deeper into it, okay? Okay, sure. Okay. Um, I went to the wilds of Switzerland uh, in the footsteps of both Rousseau and Friedrich Nietzsche. I went to Concord, Massachusetts, and Frankfurt, Germany, and Athens, and the countryside of England, and New Delhi in India,
0: and, well, I was fascinated uh, by the India. Yeah. I was fascinated when you were in New Delhi. And you talk about you, you know you talk about Gandhi and you talk about you know, the, the flawed nature of Gandhi. We don't think of him that way. Would you talk a little bit about that, what you found? So
1: I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Gandhi fan. I'll be upfront yeah. about that. I, I lived in India for several years. I was a foreign correspondent for NPR there, and I sort of fell in love with Gandhi and his ideas. Um, because i 'd never come across anything so both um, utopian and practical at the same time, you know he he really uh, b- not only did he believe in this um, what he called satyagraha, which means soul force nonviolent resistance, he believed it and he put it into action, so he was a philosopher in that he had some original ideas, lots of them actually. But really, when he was asked by a journalist, like, you know, what, how would you sum up your philosophy? He said, my life is my message. My life is my philosophy. It's written in my actions and deeds. And um, he was flawed. I mean, he, he, um, he, maybe you know this story that he, you know, he took a vow of celibacy and at age 70 something, he thought he, it's time to test the vow of celibacy. So he decided to sleep with two 19 year old, uh, Attractive young girls, uh, one of whom was his grandniece, naked to test it. And, you know, as far as we know, he passed the test. But um, in retrospect, it's probably not the kind of thing the HR department would advise you do today. (laughs) Um, He also thought that his nonviolent resistance could work anywhere and everywhere, uh, even with Adolf Hitler and the Nazis, and I don't think it could. Having said that, um, he walked the walk and he talked the talk, and he inspired Martin Luther King Jr., who traveled to India in 1959. Gandhi had been assassinated a while earlier, but he met with the Mahatma's family. Uh, John Lewis, who recently passed away, also traveled right. uh, to India some 50 years after Martin Luther King Jr. did. And you know, you probably heard this. And there's a book coming out by this title of "Good Trouble," um, John Lewis's idea that we need to get into good trouble. Necessary trouble. I heard that and I'm like, that's, that's pure Gandhi. Um, John Lewis was a Gandhian. Gandhi thought he, he hated the term passive resistance. There's nothing passive about it, he thought. It was assertive but nonviolent. You're getting in the face of your opponent, not your enemy. He didn't have enemies, he had opponents. You're getting in their face nonviolently and you're causing trouble,
0: good trouble. The Gandhi portion of the book, by found. I found very much that, and uh, I appreciated that. Um, so what's next? What are you What are you working on? What are you thinking about? Oh, boy. Um, I will just say a bit obliquely
1: that um, I've got a, a podcast I'll be working on soon. Um, I would say, I'm sorry for being a little coy, but um, I would like to see uh, my work on the screen. And I'm working with uh, some producers out on the West Coast to try to make that happen. And I hope to have news about that soon. But nothing's, uh, you know, Hollywood, right? <laughs> yeah. Nothing, nothing's done until it's done. So, um, and, um, and I'm writing a, a lot of essays. Um, I have an essay out in National Geographic about walking um, in the Atlantic, about the pleasures of uncertainty, and yes, I will be writing another book. Um, but, you know, Mitch, it's a bit of a challenge now if you're a travel writer and you can't travel. Um, you know, I'm using my U.S. passport. It makes an excellent coaster. It really does. <laughs> Put your coffee mug on it. Or if your chairs in your office are uneven, you can get that passport right under there. It, it works. So I've got to figure out how to... Um,
0: you can read the ba- journey yeah. around my room once again, right? <laughs> <laughs> The geography of my bedroom <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> um, so if you have a way to uh, if you have any idea of how uh, how, uh, how I can do that, write a travel book where I can, when they can 't travel well no, you know I that.
0: know that I know that, there, that that travel is a big part of it, but I have to say I was all, you know, i 'll repeat it again the, the the aspect which was personal and your personal take with each one of these, as you say, dead philosophers, um, that resonated with me uh, as much as the travel did. So I was very happy to be just inside your brain for a little while. Uh, Maybe that's the title of my next book, Inside My (laughs) Brain for a Little While. (laughs) okay Uh, i'm
1: going to raise that with my editor and
0: make sure you give me a little credit on that i will (laughs) Um, i i you know i can't recommend the socrates express enough um it really is a book that you probably didn't realize it but it's a book that speaks to all of us in a very different way right now and it's a book that we all need in in a lots of different ways and um Eric, I can't thank you enough for being part of the literary life. It's so good to see you again. I it's only good wish, to see you. I only wish we could be in our cafe and you could be at the end plugged oh, in the, and the, the, plugged in
1: writing. You know what? Uh, before too long, uh, I will be. Um,
0: and I'm going to order one cup of coffee and sit there all day. <laughs> so. You know, I did have... We can, we can end on this note. There are two, two things I want them to do. I do want to ask you to read a little something. Oh, oh yes. So I noticed that you end with the words "de capo."
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You end your book with the words "de capo," and why don't you talk about the significance of that and why you ended with
1: "de capo"? Is an Italian um, term. It's actually a musical term that means from the beginning. Again, it means again, one more time, and um, that was Friedrich Nietzsche's uh, motto in a way. So. Uh, he had this idea of eternal recurrence. If you've ever watched Groundhog Day, the movie, you know what it is. The idea that the world, our lives repeat over and over forever. And so uh, what Nietzsche asks is, of each of us is, um, what would you say if that were the case? If your life, the bad stuff as well as the good stuff, the good stuff is easy, but the bad stuff, including the entire freaking year of 2020, if that had to repeat itself, um, would, you in the, would you say the capo? again, let's do it all again. Um, no editing allowed. It's all or nothing. And it's a, it's a powerful thought experiment because it sort of forces you to, um, engage in some radical acceptance or not, you know, do you, do you embrace it all? Um, and it, uh, I can picture Nietzsche saying it with exclamation points. He loved exclamation points. He would string them together sometimes. Um,
0: Well, thank you. Why don't you Uh, read a a portion? Okay. So just
1: uh, this portion is from uh, chapter 10, how to appreciate the small things like, say, Shonagon. Again, Shonagon was an 11th century author and philosopher who wrote an interesting little book, which called The Pillow Book. I snuggle with the pillow book while appropriately resting my head on a pillow. I'm in a hotel room in Tokyo's Shibuya neighborhood, Though in Japan, room is a matter of opinion. Both in style and scale, the alleged room reminds me of a ship's cabin, a masterpiece of spatial efficiency. It supposedly sleeps three, but there's a catch. These three bodies must remain at rest. Any motion requires the sort of advanced coordination typically demanded of presidential visits and premarital sex. It is less room than nook. Nooks don't get their fair due, not with adults at least. Children appreciate a good nook. They instinctively seek them out, and if none is available, create one. I recall as a melancholic five-year-old transforming our Baltimore living room into a labyrinth of nooks by stringing together dozens of blankets and sheets, then anchoring them to anything within reach, chairs, couches, the dog. I was too young to articulate my motives, but I now realize what it was I craved, the sublime combination of coziness and wonder, confinement, and expansiveness, security and adventure that only a nook provides. I still like nooks. I suffer, if that's the right word, from claustrophobia's opposite. I am drawn to confined spaces, thrive in them. Maybe this is why I'm so fond of, J- of Japan. No one confines like the Japanese. People of the nook.
0: Thank you. Thank you, thank Eric. you. The book, is the Socrates Express, the author is eric weiner thank you so much and uh, i'll see you down the road i hope it's in miami or up in. I'll see you
1: down there and um while we're in the, the gratitude business mitch i, I want to say thank you for all you've done and continue to do to be a champion for authors booksellers especially authors like myself um it's because of you that i'm able to do what i do and i know it's been a tough time for you so hang in there and thank
0: you thanks thanks eric